2 Samuel chapter 12. This is a continuation of what we started two weeks ago. Took a little break for Red Heart Sunday. Two weeks ago we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 11, and of course you remember that is the story of David and Bathsheba and the terrible dark thing that happened there. And we continue with that story now in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and let's begin reading in verse 1. Then the Lord said, sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock, and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and and gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may, he may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, 
but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Father God, thank you so much for your word. I pray now, Lord, that you would just speak to us about this wonderful chapter. As wonderful a chapter as the previous one is terrible. And so I pray today that you would fill me with your spirit and help me to speak it, the truth that is herein, speak it well and clearly and accurately. I pray you'd uh, help me to say everything I should and nothing else. And I just pray, Lord, that uh, you'd preach this first to me and then to everybody here. We're just so thankful for what this chapter has to say. And so speak to us. I pray if there's anybody here to whom this message is particularly needed today, you'll help them to hear and to respond. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the days when I was bent low with the burdens of sin and strife. Then Jesus came in and rescued me and gave me a brand new life. Now as I thank him day after day for washing my sins away, it seems I can almost hear the voice of the blessed Savior say, What sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. From the book of life, they've all been torn out. I don't remember them anymore. David and Bathsheba had sinned terribly. If you were here for the last uh, message from chapter 11, you know David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, had gotten her pregnant, and then to cover all that up, he had, uh, to avoid an embarrassing scandal, had had her husband murdered, her husband Uriah. We learned all about that in chapter 11. We also learned from chapter 11 what some of the results of that terrible sin were. We learned that sin is a very real problem that we all face, and we also learned that it has very real and terrible results, which were described therein. But we come to chapter 12, and we see that there are more results of that sin mentioned here. And Some of them still aren't too good, but some of them are actually wonderful. At least one of them is actually wonderful. Because we see here in chapter 12 David's repentance leading to the restoration of his relationship with God. And that's a glorious ending to the story. Against all that evil, against all that wickedness and ugliness that occurred in chapter 11, we have the repentance and the, and, and the restoration that takes place here in chapter 12. Chapter 11 shows us how black is our heart. Chapter 12 shows us how wonderful is God's heart. Chapter 11 shows us the depths of sin. Chapter 12 shows us the heights of God's forgiveness. Chapter 11 reminds us of the reason we need a Savior. Chapter 12 reminds us that we have one. In chapter 11, we weep as we see our own wickedness in David. And in chapter 12, we rejoice as we see God's righteousness. I've quoted from Timothy Keller before when he said, I am so bad that he had to die. I am so loved that he was glad to die. The first part is chapter 11. The second part is chapter 12. I think there are five phrases here, and if you have my book on uh, the life of David, then you'll recognize some of this because I pulled some of this out of there. But there are five phrases here that we can pull out of these verses and use it as an outline this morning. The first one is in verse number five. The man who has done this shall surely die. The second is in verse number seven. You are the man. The third is in verse number 13. I have sinned against the Lord. The fourth, in verse number 13, also, the Lord also has put away your sin. 
and the fifth might seem odd, but we'll explain it when we get there. Verse 25, he called his name Jedidiah. Those five things. Let's consider that first phrase, the man who has done this shall surely die, verse number five. About a year has passed now between chapter 11 and chapter 12. After David's sin with Bathsheba, after the murder of Uriah, the child has been born. And uh, at least a year has taken place. And then verse number one, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan, God's prophet, comes to David and tells him a story. I'm not going to reiterate that story to you. You just heard it read. He tells him this story. And the interesting thing about the story to me, the first interesting thing, I see a couple. But the first interesting thing about the story is David's reaction to it. David reacted to that story in absolute rage. Did you notice that? Now, he was king. He was judge over the land. And so he was acting in his role as judge. And he pronounced a sentence on this person. He assumed Nathan was telling him a a real story. And so he pronounced a sentence. And the sentence he pronounced was actually harsher than what the law prescribed. The law in Exodus chapter 22, 1, spoke to this exact thing. It said, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Well, David got the, the fourfold part right, didn't he? He got that part of the law right, but nowhere did the law say that the man had to die. But David said in verse number 5, that man that has done this shall surely die. Much more than the law required. It's interesting, isn't it, how easy it is for us to notice the sin in others' lives and judge the sin in others' lives while ignoring completely the sin that is in our own. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Wearsby said how easy it is to be convicted about other people's sins. Amen. One man said the sympathies of the king had been deeply enlisted, his indignation aroused, but his conscience was still asleep. And at the time when he was most fatally indulgent to his own sins, he was most ready to condemn the delinquencies and errors of others. Well, another thing that jumps out at me from his response to this, is, or from this particular phrase, rather, is uh, how long it took David to get to this point. How long it took him. It is interesting to me that so much time had passed. It is interesting that at least a year had passed. What in the world had been taking place during that year? What had David been doing all of that time? And why had God given so much time between the sin and his sending Nathan to deal with it. Well, one thing we know is that during that year, David continued to experience the results of his sin. Uh, We know that because he wrote Psalm 32, and he wrote Psalm 51. Two psalms which are written after these events, but which described what took place during that year, described what he was going through during that year. In them, he described lessons like this. He gave glimpses of what his life was like estranged from God. He said, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. Do you see conviction of sin described in those verses? I do. I see loss of health. I see both physical and mental and emotional uh, pain bound up in, in, in some of those phrases. That phrase, your hand was heavy upon me. 
Loss of sleep is described in those psalms as well. Psalm 51 implies similar effects, continuous, never-ending conviction. He said, my sin is always before me in Psalm 51, verse 3. He described in that psalm loss of joy. He described physical effects that resulted from his sin. He said, make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. He talked about loss of testimony and loss of witness in Psalm 51, verse 13. He talked about his loss of the ability to worship in that same psalm. So what was going on during this long period of time? The entire year, at least, between David's sin and God sending Nathan to confront him with it. David was suffering the continuing and continual results of unconfessed sin during that time. That's what was happening. Alexander McLaren wrote, David learned what we all learn. And the holier a man is, the more speedily and sharply the lesson follows on the heels of his sin. He learned that every transgression is a blunder, that we never get the satisfaction which we expect from any sin, or if we do, we get something with it which spoils it all. A nauseous drug is added to the exciting, intoxicating drink which temptation offers. And though its flavor is at first disguised by the pleasanter taste of sin, its bitterness is persistent, though slow, and clings to the palate long after that has faded away utterly. Now think about the second phrase. The second phrase is in verse number 7. You are the man. He's told him the story. David has passed judgment thinking this is some other man. Nathan says, you are the man. Now, if this was a Hollywood production, I can just imagine how this would be done, can't you? I can imagine this symphony is just swelling up into this huge loud music and this huge thunderous chord, crashing chord, and, and thunder would go across the sky and lightning would flash across the sky and you'd hear Nathan utter in this prophetic voice, you are the man. But I don't think that's what happened. I don't think it was that way at all. I think it was more likely that Nathan spoke those words very slowly and very softly and probably with a broken heart. You were the man. You were the man. And how David's heart must have crumbled. I mean, think about it. Put yourself in his place. How his heart must have crumbled within him as he was convicted by how quick he was to judge sin in somebody else. And how slow to judge it in himself. You are the man. You know, God says the same thing to us today, to every one of us. It, it might take a variety of forms, and probably very few of us or none of us will ever have a prophet of God come and stick his finger in our face and say it in the way it happened with David. But God reveals to each of us the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. He might do it from the pulpit. When someone is preaching during a worship service, as is being conducted here today. You might do it by sending a soul winner to your house, knocking on your door and having somebody try to share the gospel with you in that way. He, he might do it over a cup of coffee around the table with friends. He might do it by allowing you to just pick up something to read or flipping to a certain channel on the radio or the television. But in every case, in every case, regardless of how God chooses to do it, all of us are described in this verse. You are the man. All of us are sinners in need of a Savior. And if you doubt that, you just need to go to Romans 3. I just read this in my devotions this week. Romans chapter 3, Paul's masterful argument there where he piles argument on top of argument on top of argument and just stacks up verses to make this point. It's in Romans chapter 3 and uh, verse 10, verses 10 through 18. 
Paul wrote, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All of those are verses from the Old Testament. He's just stacking up and stacking up and stacking up to make his argument. And then he comes to verse number 23 where he sums it all up and says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You were the man. You were the man. These words not only describe David and his situation, which they did, but they also describe all of us. Nobody gets a pass. If you were breathing, you were the man. And that brings us to the next phrase, which I believe, uh, the next verse in this chapter is verse 13. And the next phrase there, I think this is the key verse of the chapter, verse number 13. And consider the first phrase there, I have sinned against the Lord. I love David's response there. The way it is stated so simply and so matter-of-factly, it's possible that we might think it was just some mere intellectual assent that David was saying, okay, Nathan, you're you're right. I shouldn't have done that. That wasn't good of me. I agree. I've sinned. Intellectual assent to it. But I, I don't think that's what we see here. I think we see David's heart broken because of his sin. I think we see his heartfelt confession and repentance of his sin. As we just mentioned, David or Nathan's message of you are the man was in effect the message the Bible confronts each of us with that, that we're all sinners. But now I think in David's I have sinned against the Lord, we see the proper response to that. And the response all of us need to have. We all need to respond, I have sinned against the Lord. You know, when confronted with the, 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 the reality of Scripture and what it has to say to us and the implications on our lives, people respond to that message in all kinds of different ways, don't they? I mean, I, we probably can think of as many ways as, as there are people, but, but there are some common ones. Some people just get offended whenever the Word of God is proclaimed. They get offended and they turn away. That's certainly a common thing in our day and age today when people get offended over absolutely everything, even things we didn't know it was possible to be offended over. People are offended over today. But some people get offended over the preaching of the word, and they get up and just just leave. Jesus had that happen. Remember his words to the disciples after he had said something particularly hard, and everybody got up and walked away? He looked at his disciples, who were the only ones left standing there, and he said, Will you two go away? That's one response. Some people get angry. And they, uh, they try to silence the message. The prophets experienced this from time to time. The apostles experienced this when they were told by the uh, judicial authorities to speak no more in this name. And we're seeing this more and more in our society as people are trying more and more to silence Christianity. Some get angry. And some, perhaps, just simply ignore the message. They just ignore it. I've told you before about a message I heard from Alistair Begg, which uh, I always think about this because he really, I think, nailed what is a problem with so many people today. He was preaching uh, about Paul's interaction with Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And here's what it says. It says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am except for these chains. And when he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves. And Begg's interpretation of that little scene was this. 
Here's Paul preaching his heart out. And he, he's trying to convince Agrippa. And when he's all done, Agrippa and Bernice and the others get up and just walked away. And he said that's so much the way people are today uh, when they hear the preaching of the gospel. The amen is said. They immediately turn to somebody next to them and say, hey, what are we doing for lunch? Or they begin talking about a football game or some other triviality. But they just get up and walk away. And so people respond in all kinds of ways to the, to the teaching of the gospel or, or to that message, you are the man. Some get offended. Some get mad. Some just ignore it completely. David, too, could have responded in any one of those ways, couldn't he? And after what we saw in chapter 11, we wouldn't have been surprised if he responded much more violently. He could have ordered Nathan killed. We now know he had it in him to do something that evil. He could have ignored him completely. He could have done all kinds of things, had him imprisoned or removed. But he didn't do any of that. He heard the message. He believed the message. He accepted it. He recognized it was the word of God. And he confessed his sin. And he repented of his sin. And again, we won't go there, but you can go there on your own to get some idea of the depths of his contrition, the reality of his repentance. All you have to do is read Psalm 51. I encourage you to do that this week sometime on your own. The heading of that psalm. Do you ever read the headings of the psalms? They're in there for a reason. The heading of that psalm says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, David didn't have to put that on the front of his psalm. He didn't have to admit to that. But he wanted everybody to know why he was repenting of his sin. He wanted everybody to know. And that psalm begins with, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. I have sinned against the Lord. And so I think here in this little phrase, I think we see the true greatness of David here. David was not great because he was some great, perfect human being. Obviously, he was not. We saw that in chapter 11. He was a sinner just like you and just like me. What made David great was his heart for God, a heart which, when confronted by how his sin had injured his relationship with God, confessed and repented and sought forgiveness. Jesus told the story of the parable Pharisee and the publican which is the same thing. Remember the Pharisee went and prayed with himself and said, I'm thankful that I'm not like other men. But the publican smote his breast, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I read this verse, and I find myself convicted by this question. How do I respond when the Nathans that God sends my way say to me, you are the man? How do I respond when God confronts my sin? Do I get offended? Do I stop my ears? Do I get angry? Do I try to silence the message? Do I, maybe even worse, pretend I never heard it and just walk away and ignore it? Or do I respond like David, who would later sing in another psalm, Psalm 32, I acknowledged my sin to you. In my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Well, that brings us to what I think is the most amazing of all the phrases that I wanted to share with you this morning. It's also in verse number 13. Nathan said, the Lord also has put away your sin. Hallelujah. 
Glory to God. I mean, think about that. Let your eyes rest on those words for just a few moments. The Lord also has put away your sin. Now, David is here now confronted with the full horror of what he has done. Whether he's been denying that to himself or what, I don't know. But now he's bearing the full weight of his guilt. It's all out there. He's admitted it. It's there. And he must have been absolutely amazed to hear those words. The Lord also has put away your sin. One day the Pharisees brought a woman to Jesus and they tossed her, tossed her into the street in front of him because they had caught her in adultery in the very act. John chapter 8, I believe, is where this story is. And uh, they, wanted, they wanted to stone her to death and, uh, as the law required and all that kind of thing. And Jesus, in a very famous scene, knelt down in front of them all and began writing on the ground. We don't know what he was writing. I theorize he might have been writing their sins. I'm not sure. But he was writing something on the ground. And he looked up at them and he said, the one of you that is without sin, you can throw the first stone. And, of course, they were all convicted by their own sin, by their own conscience, and they all just kind of sheepishly melted away. And pretty soon here stood Jesus in the street all by himself with this woman. And he said to her, is there no one here who condemns you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Glory to God, the Lord has put away your sin. Have you thought about the implications of that verse? Has it gotten really down into your mind? David's sin had definite results. Let's not be confused. Uriah did die. There's no doubt. The baby died. His son Amnon defiled his daughter Tamar, and Amnon died as a result. His son Absalom revolted and tried to take the kingdom. Absalom defiled David's wives in the sight of all Israel, just as was prophesied here by Nathan. Absalom died. And then his son Adonijah died. And the results of David's sin were grievous in the deaths of four of his sons and, and all of the other things that took place there. It was a very prophecy he had pronounced. Fourfold he paid. But the greatest result of David's sin was forgiveness. The Lord also has put away your sins. Hallelujah. In this simple phrase in verse number 13, I think we have the gospel. We have the good news. We have the fact that God does not delight in crushing us for our sins, but has made every effort and every preparation that our sins might be put away, forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west, buried in the depths of the deepest sea, forgotten to be remembered no more. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. The Lord has also put away your sin. Micah seven eighteen, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. The Lord has also put away your sin. Acts 13.38, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 2.12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. We ought to be on shouting ground as we think about this. The Lord has also put away your sin. Now, we have to realize something here. 
David's sin was put away because of his repentance. David's sin was put away because he recognized it and confessed it. Had that not been his heart, had that not been his response, there would have been no such forgiveness. The Bible says forgiveness comes when we seek it with repentant hearts. Those who don't die in their sins. So if you're willing to come to Christ with the heart David showed here, with a heart that cries out in repentance and confession concerning your sin, uh, if you're not, rather, then you're going to die lost. And there will be no forgiveness for you. But all, if you come as David did, the Lord also has put away your sins. Have you done that? Have you sought the forgiveness that David received here? Have you repented of your sin? Have you responded as he did when confronted with your need? Of the Savior. Well, one last phrase. And I'll be done. It's in verse 25. And you probably are wondering why I picked this last one. Verse 25, he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedediah because of the Lord. He called his name Jedediah. Warren Wiersbe wrote, How the grace of God shines in verses 24 and 25. For God chose Bathsheba to be the mother of the next king. Solomon means peaceable. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. God turned the curse into a blessing, for Solomon was the fulfillment of the promise given to David in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 9. Nothing's going to stop God's plan. Nothing. In the middle of all this story, we see this glorious truth that God's plan was still moving forward, and we see that God had known all about this from the beginning. He'd actually factored it all in to his plans. Here is Jedidiah, Solomon, the one through whom God would fulfill the Davidic covenant that he had mentioned earlier, the one who would sit on the throne after, the, after, after David's death. And here he was, actually, the result of the union of David and Bathsheba. What a picture. I don't know about you, but I see such a picture of the forgiveness of God, of its completeness, of its unspeakable beauty. God loved David. God loved David. And even a sin as great as what took place in chapter 11 couldn't change that. God loved Bathsheba. And even the sin that she committed in chapter 11 couldn't change that. God loved Solomon, Jedediah, beloved of the Lord, and the fact that he was the result of their sinful union had nothing to do with that. God's love so far outshines our sin that it is impossible to put it into words. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. I think the whole gospel's there. The good news of Jesus Christ is all seen right there in what happened in that interaction between Nathan and David. And how astonishing is that gospel? A.W. Tozer said of it, Jesus Christ knows the worst about you. Nonetheless, he is the one who loves you the most. When my flesh becomes weak, it's then I can speak to the Savior who's with me each day. Oh, Father, forgive me. Hear my plea. And he washes my sins away. Each time that I bow to give him thanks for removing my guilt and shame, he cannot recall what I'm talking about. For his answer is always the same. What sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. From the book of life, they've all been torn out. I don't remember them anymore. Spurgeon said, and I have to end with a Spurgeon quote. Spurgeon said, Satan tells me I am unworthy, but I always was unworthy. And yet thou hast long loved me. That's what I see here in the story of David 
and his repentance. So I wonder this morning, have you said those words yet to God? I have sinned against the Lord. And have you heard him say back to you, the Lord also has put away your sin. Father God, we thank you for this glorious, glorious ending to the story of David and Bathsheba. And we know there were ramifications that went on. But, oh, Father, we're so thankful for this wonderful truth that even when we sin against you, if we will confess and repent of our sin, you will take it away. And so, Father, I pray today if there's anybody here to whom this is new news, maybe somebody who's never trusted you as Savior, maybe they don't really realize uh, how much uh, danger they're in as a lost person. Lord, just this week we've watched one of our number go out into eternity, and another is uh, just standing at the very brink even as we speak. Lord, we are not guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen. And Lord, if we die lost... We uh, have no further opportunity to be saved. So, Lord, I pray today if there's even one here who doesn't know you as Savior, one who's never said, Lord, uh, I have sinned against the Lord, help them to say it this day. Help them to confess their sin and hear the wonderful truth that you have put away their sin. It only happens through Jesus, we know. It only because of what he did on the cross. We're so thankful for this picture of what he did there. So just uh, apply it to hearts, we pray. And, Father, if there are believers here who have Uh, other needs in their life right now. I know some are are, are going through some things. And so I pray, Lord, if there are other decisions need to be made, if you've spoken in some other way to hearts, uh, as we sing, as we wrap up our service, help us all to respond as you would have us to. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.